All right, this is Andrew Brewer. This is the Northwest AHEC Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast. I have the pleasure today of introducing my guests, um, A.J. Durod and Gary Rosenthal. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves with their titles and, and their roles. But uh, they are involved in the – we're going to talk today about the academic learning healthcare system. And uh, the way I want to tee that up is to say that Wake Forest has had a long tradition of being an academic medical center. And now we're referring to um, the whole system as an academic learning healthcare health center type environment. So I, I want each one of you to, to, we'll start off with AJ and and introduce yourself and, and kind of talk about how the transition from academic medical center to a learning healthcare system and, you know, your involvement in that starting out. Sure. Thank you so much, Andrew, first of all, for just having myself and Gary on the podcast. It's an honor to be asked to be part of of the podcast and actually speak about this important topic of the ALHS or the you know academic uh, learning health system. Um, so my background is electrical and computer engineering. Uh, I did spend some time at the U.S. Patent Office, and I'm an internist as well as a practicing clinical informaticist. My title is Vice Chair of Informatics and Analytics, so granted by uh, Dr. Rosenthal, who's going to introduce himself uh, in just a moment. Uh, the majority of my clinical time is spent working in the inpatient, outpatient, and perioperative settings, uh, and then a good portion of my time is spent developing and implementing applied clinical informatics-related interventions in our health system. And I'll talk a little bit about how I perceive the informatics to kind of be some of the base substrate of the health system, meaning the information transfer being the substrate. Uh, with that, I'll just pause there and turn it over to Gary to introduce himself, and then we can dive in. Hi, I'm uh, Gary Rosenthal, and uh, I want to join AJ in thanking you for the opportunity to uh, share some thoughts this afternoon. I am uh, chairman of the Department of Internal Medicine uh, in the Wake Forest uh, School of Medicine. Uh, by way of background, I'm a general internist. Uh, I've uh, had a very longstanding interest in healthcare improvement and healthcare delivery uh, research, uh, both while I was on the faculty initially at uh, Case Western Reserve and then more recently uh, at the University of Iowa. And in making the decision to, um, you know, come to Wake Forest about four and a half years ago, I think one of the strongest factors um, that I considered was the commitment uh, of the institution, the commitment of leadership, you know, to really transform uh, Wake Forest uh, as an academic uh, learning health system, which I guess uh, we'll, you know, very shortly, I think, you know, dive into. Uh, exactly. Well, what is this thing? Well, great. And and I I like to just kind of give my view of how I've seen this evolve. And I'm going to call out AJ here too because I've I've known AJ for I don't know maybe how long have you been around? Ten years now? Has it been that long? <laughs> I've, I've been in and out of uh, in and out of your world for the past ten years. I'd say yeah. Yeah. So so. To me, you represent a digital native. I don't know exactly how old you are, but you're young and you've grown up probably in this in this realm of technology. And, and it seems like the, the jump to from an academic medical center to this learning health system is data driven, is technology enabled. And and that's 
you know, that's how I've seen it grow. And I've seen, you know, your role, you come in um, in medicine and then, you know, really these these areas of technology and data and, and informatic, informatics um, have, have really evolved since, since you've been or as a part of you being there. So if you, if you want to talk about how, you know, just just how you've grown, you know, how technology has been in your life and, and how you've seen that touch in medicine. Absolutely. So, um, Andy, I, I'll say I don't want to focus that the technology and the tools are an enablement for the ALHS, but it is not encompassing all encompassing of the ALHS. It is substrate. So it provides the infrastructure, I would say, for the entire health system to become learning. And, and the analogy I like to use is um, at least even through medical school and in some of our practices today, we are linear vectors. And so I'm going to get in a little bit into the math here, but we we practice without really looking back. Or when we do look back at our own practice patterns or the data behind what we're doing, and is it effective? We get inaccurate, missing, incomplete information potentially on our own practice or how that's impacting patients or our health system as a whole. And so informatics as being the substrate, when I reference that, essentially what I'm offering is creating more accurate, better information systems that allows for us to feed back the correct information to the right individuals to make more uh, more rapid decisions. So one example is the translation of research evidence to practice would take anywhere from six to 13 years. I, I've seen some references that suggested that. The goal, uh, one of the goals of the learning health system is to reduce that time from maybe six years to then four years to then three years to two years to where really we generate the evidence and we're being able to build that back into our clinical practice more quickly. Um, and so I'll pause there. I'd, I'd love to hear Gary's thoughts on that commentary as well. Um, yeah, it, it, I think, you, you know, you, you touched on, you know, probably um, the key factor that's helped, you know, drive the learning health system. And that's, you know, the recognition that through the implementation of electronic health records, we have enormous amounts of data, you know, that are being collected, you know, every day on the patients we see. Um, we're starting, um, you know, to also see the ability to collect information, you know, from home monitoring devices when, you know, patients are not in the clinic. And I think the learning health system, you know, was bought out of the recognition that um, we can do better in healthcare. And I can, you know, a little bit maybe talk about, you know, geez, what does the data show about, you know, healthcare delivery, uh, you know, in the U.S.? But this recognition that we can do better, that we have gaps, and now all of a sudden, we have the ability to marshal information about, you know, how we are doing, you know, in every clinical setting in which we practice. And we have this unique ability, you know, to be able uh, to learn from the patients who we're currently caring for, you know, to care for the next patient, you know, who we might see. I think from a layperson standpoint, which I am, um, you know, I, I see and I appreciate the substrate comment because we want technology to be in the background and we want, especially on the input side, 
from the clinician facing, the patient facing. We want all that to be seamless, just like in education, which is what I'm in, is like we don't apply technology just because it's technology. We want it to make effective learning and effective use. So, so that's what I see the parallels there. And, and I guess where I'm going with it is that, um, uh, you know, for me as a layperson, there's this mystery, mysterious black box after all the inputs that sits out there and then somehow that that information gets to the clinician. So that black box, can you unpack that a little more for me? Like, I think what we're talking about here, the big data and the, and the, you know, those types of informatics is that black box. So maybe you can explain how that, how, how that shortening from the six years to the four years and how that can happen maybe and how that's, you know, that's the sausage making behind the scenes, I think. Either one of you can take that away. <laughs> so, um, I, I'll, uh, you know, give a few thoughts and, um, AJ probably actually has some, you know, more detailed, you know, perspective on this, but you're right. Um, what, you know, what we're able to collect, we're able to collect massive amounts of data. Um, the challenge is how do you turn those individual pieces of data into information, you know, that's really usable. Um, one of the challenges in implementing the learning health system is that, you know, the data is often collected in the usual course of clinical practice. It, you know, in contrast, in many research studies, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of standardization and rigor, you know, by which, you know, data elements, you know, are collected. There's often, you know, when you're uh, classifying a patient as having a certain chronic condition, you know, there's often very explicit criteria, you know, that you have to use, you know, to make that diagnosis. You know, in contrast, um, you know, the data that's often collected in clinical practice, you know, is much less standardized. Um, it's collected often at irregular intervals just because, you know, patients interact with healthcare, um, you know, not in a standardized, you know, way where, you know, in contrast in research studies, you know, you'll collect data at a regular interval, you know, in every single patient. So the challenge is, um, is to sort of take this huge amount of data and try to transform it, you know, into the information uh, that can then help build, you know, the knowledge about, you know, how to do things better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry, were you done, Gary? Um, take it away. Um, just to kind of dovetail on what you said. So I almost see this, um, a, a, an interesting parallel here, Andy, this, what we're, ha what is happening now in healthcare is to some degree analogous with the industrial revolution, right? You imagine the industrial revolution, let's just take an example of, I don't know, a coffee maker or, or a, a bolt or a part. We had 10 different vendors with 10 different mechanisms, all proprietary, right? And so part of the challenge, and there's a lot of competing forces at multiple layers, whether you're talking health system level, national level, EHR vendor level, governmental level, there's, there's challenges, but fundamentally everybody agrees on the vector direction, which is we need standardization of all of these data sources, ideally, whether it's EHR or whether it's these mobile devices that Gary alluded to or home monitoring or, you know, all of these things 
um, into a way that's easily ingestible. And so the EHR vendors are doing a good job at the concept, which is interoperability. And um, this standards organization, HL7, has done a really good job and, and it is continuing to move forward. It will be uh, you know, some time before we really get there. The, the, these standardization mechanisms take time, but we are on the pathway. And so hopefully that helps unpack the black box a little bit. There are a lot of inputs. And so the processing of how we deal with those inputs is really complex. Let's take, you know, banking as a perfect example. Now we can get on our mobile phone and I can do all of my banking via mobile phone. But really there's probably, I don't know, 10 variables in banking that really need to be considered. Whereas with each data element in medicine, just with blood pressure, there's probably 10 to 20 different elements of how we capture that, measure that, how it's done. And so you, it is an exponentially more complex input system than maybe some of our traditional systems. I hope that, um, hope that translates. Yeah, it does. It's not just the number. It's all the factors going into the number as well. And it's that's got to be a challenge to capture all that. So I get that. And the puzzle pieces of all the inputs and the standardizations for the EHR and for, well, you have the ICD-10 or 11 codes or whatever. So all those puzzle pieces kind of fit. And then you have this amalgamation of big data that then you can start asking questions to. And then getting that translated down to patient care level and, and and improving that quality. So which which brings me to the question, you know, how do you know what questions to ask? I mean, I know that's got to be the biggest challenge. You got all this data. How do you distill it into information and even better yet, actionable intelligence? So I, I think an important element, you know, in the learning health system is that the activities and the questions that are addressed are, um, you know, represent issues that are priorities, you know, for the health system that address, you know, major opportunities to improve care, to improve, you know, patient, you know, outcomes. And I think, you know, one of the differences between the work that's done, you know, in a learning health system and just you know, research in general is that, um, you know, there is this very direct relationship, you know, between the focus of the uh, investigation uh, with, you know, the needs of both patients and the health systems. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, research spans a wide, you know, uh, set of, you know, interests and areas and, um, you know, typically uh, investigators who do research focus on areas perhaps that they're most passionate about. Um, you know, in contrast, I think learning health system uh, work tries to focus on those areas, you know, that, you know, potentially are going to be most impactful. F fully agree with what Gary said, priorities for the health system, really kind of it's ensuring that alignment between the health system priorities and what what the actions are and um i would say there are stakeholders at every level of the institution as well that can recognize what those health system priorities need to be and so ensuring that we kind of engage and consider who those stakeholders are such that our health system priorities align with the activities of of the ac academic learning health system are key um, and those strategies in alignment um, as gary alluded to 
essentially help us filter uh, what's most appropriate to focus efforts on. Certainly there's so much to potentially do. How do we how do we decide? And I think that gets to the crux of your question. Did we answer your question? I, I think so. I mean, I, I'm what I'm struggling with personally or not struggling. I, what I see is my interest or my bias towards this conversation is like, um, you know, for one, you know, from an AHEC hat, I see, you know, how can we make the jobs and lives of the healthcare professionals out in the region um, better and their ability to expand their own capacity and prevent their own burnout and to expand their knowledge continually. And from a humanist standpoint, um, you know, how do we impact patient care in a way that, that, that improves the quality of lives for everyone in the public. So those those are the two areas I'm seeing all this from. And then I can see the level of stakeholders that go into the healthcare system because it is a business and there are lots of moving pieces and parts to that. Um, so um, I appreciate your your answers there. How what what's the promise look like for AI? I mean, we hear a lot about artificial intelligence and and how how is that how can that be unleashed? And I'm sure people are doing it. I've heard of you know Watson Healthcare and and all these others. Did they go in that big data and did they come up with anything useful? <laughs> um, I'll I'll take this one and then Gary feel free to dive in. Um. This is not necessarily endorsement, but there's a great book called Deep Medicine by Eric Tuple uh, that folks can choose to read if they see fit. It's on um, Audible as well. I, I listened to the audiobook. Actually, Gary gave me a copy uh, as well that I that I need to return. Uh, by the way, um, <laughs> but uh, but it goes through. You know, there's a ton of promise, and um, I say approach it with caution. There there is. A lot of promise for AI with specific use cases, with validation of the data sets, thinking about how do we ensure that it's not biased. But it is in the early stages, um, I will say. Everything from how do we take a clinical encounter and, and generate a note out of it using AI and natural language processing paradigms through how do we make better diagnoses in mental health and EKGs. And so AI, in, in one form or another, depending on whether you're talking about a a rules-based system or a, or a deep neural net. Um, the deep neural nets are newer technologies and they're a little more black box, kind of alluding to what you were talking about earlier, where we have inputs and output, but we don't really know what happens inside, but it's uh, versus a rules-based system that we define. And, and I think Gary had been working on rules-based um, intelligence systems you know, probably before I was born. Um, so he might be able to talk about maybe some of the historical perspective, and then I can kind of jump back in and talk about maybe what I see happening in the future um, as well. I I think we have to approach it with caution um, because, and I would say that right now where we are is specific use cases for AI. And so um, if you're familiar with the hype cycle, Andy, we're at the very top of the AI hype cycle right now, uh, just mitigating expectations for that. So AJ, um, I'm I'm not quite that old, but but getting close. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Gary. So I wasn't a jab. <laughs> well, so I mean, the um, making predictions, you know, has been a big part of you know medicine for a very long time. Um, you know, uh, originally, I mean, those predictions were based on you know in my judgment. Um, you know, based on the prior patients that I've seen, I think this is most likely. Um, sort of the next 
you know, iteration of, you know, prediction involved, um, you know, trying to um, uh, systematically organize the, um, you know, the clinical observations that we make or, you know, the results of simple, you know, lab studies and seeing, you know, how can we take um, different findings and combine them in a way, you know, to give a perhaps a more accurate um, prediction, you know, whether it's a prognosis, whether it's, um, you know, the likelihood of a given diagnosis, you know, whether it's, you know, which diagnostic test to use. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of those rules, you know, improve the accuracy, you know, of, of, of diagnosis. Um, you know, unfortunately, not, you know, many of those, you know, tools were never really fully integrated, you know, into clinical practice. I think, you know, AI expands on that further by one, you know, just being able to marshal, um, you know, data on a much bigger scale, uh, you know, than we've ever been able to do before. And, you know, use some approaches, you know, to data analysis that allows us to make use of all of the data, you know, that, you know, that might be available. Um, it, you know, it offers the power potentially, you know, to be able to discern relationships, you know, that wouldn't be apparent when you're looking at say 10 patients or a hundred patients or, you know, a thousand patients, but all this, you know, you know, now you have the ability to look at, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of patients and potentially, you know, to discern, you know, new, new relationships. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, the caveat is that it has enormous, you know, potential, you know, for improving, you know, diagnosis. Um, you know, but but it's it is still built on the quality of the information exactly. that is going into the predictions, mm -hmm. and and that's why you know one has to be very careful about um, asking the right question that that data is actually capable you know of of answering. And yeah, I, I, no, I'm, I was just going to say you know, and I think we can all cite you know instances where, geez, they, you know, they use the appropriate AI technique, but the data, you know, that they're using, you know, was flawed in some way, you know, where, you know, even though the analytics were very powerful, it's, it's moving them astray. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I'm so glad, Gary, you're talking, we're bringing this back to data quality, because really that is the, the probably one of the most important things that we can do to build this academic learning health system. So it starts with the quality accuracy missingness or lack of missingness, you know, the robustness of the data. So so that leads me to, well, I mean, I was thinking of it right to my previous question is how AI could help us figure out what questions to ask, like in a meta sense. And then we take that and then apply it with a more humanist approach, I guess, and more discerning eyeball. So, um, which, also brought up the question, um, so besides learning health systems, are, do you see or, or, or what's going on in the um, private sector as far as medical devices or medical procedure or you know, pharmaceuticals, all these things? I'm sure they're harvesting a lot of this data coming out of the LHS and applying it to 
product manufacture or product development or research or or those things what what what's happening in that space well you know th there is just you know an incredible amount of activity you know so healthcare is you know 20% of the economy so you know there's a tremendous amount of you know dollars that go into healthcare that go into um, you know healthcare decision making um, you know, and so there are a myriad of entrepreneurs, um, you know, that are working uh, to solve some problem or, you know, some, uh, you know, small issue in healthcare. You've got, you know, all of the, um, you know, major, um, uh, you know, technology companies, you know, Google, you know, Microsoft, you know, Amazon. Are investing big dollars in healthcare, uh, you know, analytics. Uh, so there's a you know tremendous amount of you know movement out there. One one of the problems, you know, is that it, there are a myriad of products out there. Many of them just solve very small, you know, uh, issues or help in very small ways, and um, it's impossible if you're a health system to integrate, you know, everything that's out there, um, you know, because they're not, you know, oftentimes comprehensive, you know, so, uh, solutions. So in, in, in some cases, you know, some of these products are, um, you, you know, they're examples of use cases of what you can do. But I think what's really needed is to try to solve, you know, questions on a, on a much bigger scale. Absolutely. You know, to dovetail on that, each one of those domains that you mentioned, Andy, are domains in which those particular stakeholders, pharma, et cetera, have a incentive or an outcome to, to create the AI paradigm or, or the dis clinical decision support. And where it kind of comes together is what Gary said, which is how we can kind of organize or um, collate, if you will, all of those disparate um solutions into a more comprehensive solution which is um where you can see the electronic health record and the vendors kind of playing a major role which is taking pharma let's say or um, maybe a specific diagnostic approach or another one and and offering a suite of solutions to health systems from a digital health standpoint so you know right now we're talking about the digital component i don't want to lose track of how important all of the other stuff is with respect to the ALHS uh, because it's very much keeping the patient and the clinicians at the center. And, and you mentioned that earlier, and I'd like to come back to that. But I can see that this digital health marketplace, if you will, with integrated solutions where um, health systems can, you know, pick and choose from a comprehensive solution set being um, part of the overarching solution. Uh, coming back to, you know, you mentioned, you know, AHEC's purview is to you know, make the lives better, decrease burnout, and improve patient care overall. And I, I would say that ultimately and fundamentally, even though we're talking about the learning health system from the health system standpoint right now, the fundamental goal of that health system is exactly what you're describing, which is making those clinicians' lives better and decreasing burnout. So several of these um, ALHS-related projects or work have focused on workflow efficiencies for our physicians, decreasing burnout, um, data aggregation in a meaningful way. How do we, um, and, and those should, 
then ultimately translate into also patient care, um, direct patient care benefits as well. No, I appreciate uh, that. Go ahead, Gary. I'm just going to, you know, one other general comment. You know, we've been focusing a lot on uh, technology and informatics, you know, ability to mobilize, you know, information. I think just as important um, as, uh, you know, the, the tools is the, the implementation of a true learning health system really requires a cultural transformation. It requires everyone in working in that system, you know, saying to themselves, let's try to do something better today than we did yesterday and better tomorrow uh, than we're doing it today. Um, you know, in, 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 I think it requires, you know, uh, curiosity. It requires, um, you know, people to approach things, you know, that, you know, from the perspective of everything, uh, you know, can be approved. And, and creating that culture um, where you have, you know, people coming to work with that mindset every day is, you know, perhaps even more important, you know, than some of the, uh, you know, technological, you know, capabilities. Well, I love that you brought that back in because because it, it does speak to one of my personal interests is just wellness. And I think once you have that spirit of constantly wanting to bring your better self and do better every day, um, and and because healthcare is kind of the tip of the cultural spear, so to speak. I mean, from a uh, trauma and illness standpoint, you know, that's where people have to come to terms with their real truth, you know, about their health. And if they're surrounded by people who have that curiosity and that desire to want to learn and are hungry for improvement, I think that that trickles down into those patient lives too. So that's a fuzzy, in, you know, factor that is probably hard to measure, mm -hmm. but, but I think I love that you put that in because it is, it is something, I mean, if, uh, if our whole society had that attitude, then, you know, all our problems would be solved, right? If we all wanted to bring, if we all compared ourselves to who we were yesterday and say, we want to be better today, right? We, we would all, you know, the world would be a wonderful place. <laughs> so, so go ahead. I want to comment on that. Yeah. It, Cause I think it takes, not only does it take work for the culture shift, but it takes work at the individual level every day to come in with that mentality as well, right, Andy? And I think that that's a huge component. So there's several L ALHS work groups that Gary and I are on, um, kind of as we consider the Atrium Wake uh, combined enterprise at this point and how we start creating that culture shift. And there are impressive conversations and all the folks on the call have that mindset, but then how do we slowly let that filter out and then make it and incentivize it and actively do it on a daily basis? Because spreading the gospel is one thing, but implementing that culture mm -hmm. change, as Gary mentioned, is a, a whole nother set of challenges. Yeah, I mean, all the way down to the, you know, from the CNA to the, to the intake uh, person at the desk. I mean, you know, it does have to trickle all the way down to, to be noticed, I think, mm -hmm. from, from that frontline standpoint, which I, which, you know, it, bringing it back to the feedback loop of the, the, the knowledge gained and the academics and stuff. How, give me some examples of how that feeds back into the medical school curriculum, because we do have this medical school piece and we have these students that come that want to be cl clinicians and specialists and stuff. And, 
probably 10, 15 years ago, informatics was probably not on the radar. And now it's probably a huge part of that. So can you explain how that's evolved and changed and what it looks like now? Gary, do you want to take this or sh shall I? Um, why, why, why don't you start? You're, you're, as we previously discussed, you're much closer to the medical students than I, I am. I am. You know, what, what I've seen, um, Andy, and I'm not so familiar with exactly the medical school curriculum right now, so I'll have to defer or we can ask some questions to kind of the leadership for the medical school and what formalized curriculum exists. But personally, I have had so much more interest in informatics in the past three years with medical students coming to me with STEM backgrounds. That is the science, technology, engineering, and math or physics backgrounds that say, I got into medicine because I see technology and medicine and informatics and these things coming together to help improve and create more of those feedback loops, that cycle. And so I think it's almost a natural, it, it's, it's not fully natural, but what I'm seeing is a lot more interest in, the, in these digital natives. I think you used that word earlier mm -hmm. and these digital natives to have interest in this domain they come in with some base knowledge already they've grown up with computers they've grown up with technology and they're facile agile with it and so wanting to use or leverage those tools again technology and informatics being part of the tool set that enables the culture shift and changes um I i've seen that just explode uh and so i think that that in and of itself will build capacity or a workforce that has that knowledge um, along with some of the educational programs that we have. So Gary has helped support a resident-driven informatics pathway. Um, if you just Google Wake Forest Clinical Scholars in Informatics, you can see uh, we have an external facing webpage with the curriculum, uh, kind of health, the, the residents learn health information technologies. It's a mentorship and education program for internal medicine residents. And they do a project over the course of two years. It's an applied project where they get some baseline data, examine that data, do a workflow analysis, understand how I could create an intervention, put that intervention in the system and then analyze it. And then at the end, the most important piece is what do you do? Do you keep that intervention going or do you get rid of it because it didn't work? And what has happened in the past is oftentimes those interventions would stay in the system for a really long period of time and nothing would actually happen or they'd get shelved, put on the shelf and, and would not be used. And so. At least that's my direct involvement. One of my um, one of my passions uh, is mm -hmm. to to teach and educate our physicians. I think really getting an understanding of the problems in healthcare requires some degree of actually working in a healthcare environment. So sometimes the medical students are a little early, if you will, in terms of really understanding the challenges and the pain points in healthcare. Does, well, that, does it, that answer your question, Andy? Yeah, I think so. And, it, it, you know, it, it really shifted my mindset. So, so if you have a STEM student coming, I mean, they're looking at it probably more of a scalable approach, like how can I improve the lives of way more people than I could as an individual clinician? So that's interesting. That's what I wrote in my personal statement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not even kidding. I could pull it out. <laughs> That's yeah. great. That's great. Yeah. Well, you're 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 you know you're you're leading this 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 whole generation of 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 this. So yeah, very lucky. <laughs> Gary, do you have anything you want to add to that thread? No, I think AJ, you know, really um, captured it very well. Um, 
there is a, you know, I think some of the focus um, is also being driven, you know, by just, you know, changes in the expectations of what we want students and our, you know, residents to learn. So, you know, there are, you know, required competencies. Uh, the students and residents, you know, must build, you know, just in um, improving, you know, healthcare delivery and thinking about how you go about, you know, measuring, um, you know, the outputs of, of, of healthcare and, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, specific projects that one could do uh, to improve some aspect of healthcare. Uh, you know, I can say that you know, these elements were never part of the curriculum, you know, that I had, you know, as a medical student, you know, or a resident. Uh, so, so I think, you know, students and residents now um, are at least, you know, a little tuned in, you know, to this aspect of medicine. And I think it's um, what our job is, is to just really get them uh, enthusiastic and, you know, charged, um, you know, to, you know, really want to, um, you know, be change agents in healthcare. Um, you know, after I think AJ mentioned, you just, you have to have a little bit of a perspective um, of what healthcare is before you, you know, start, uh, uh, you know, figuring out, you know, how to, how to change things. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And and as y'all have been talking, my vision, my understanding of all this is becoming so much tighter. Um, I've been around the practice support team in AHEC, and they're the ones out at the front lines at the private, the small practices and, and a lot of the uh, places to get them their EHRs and their patient-centered uh, medical home status and all that stuff. So basically helping that that data input normalize more. And, and y'all were mentioning that earlier about how important that is to get the data in um, in a way that is meaningful. And then, you know, the, the PDSA cycles and how, how that process improvement happens in an almost real-time basis now. So from the six years to the four years, almost like, well, that didn't work. Let's try this next week. You know, so, so those kind of things from a process standpoint. And then the other thing I wanted to, I wanted to circle back to <laughs> both, um, you know, technology and devices and wearables and telehealth and some of these things and talk about, well, we'll get to the wearables in a minute, but you mentioned entrepreneurial entrepreneurial uh, efforts and also focusing on those process improvements. So I know one of the initiatives that's come out of the, the medical center is the colon cancer screening. And, and you know, can you relate to how that that is a part of the LHS process and how it's spinning off innovation and how it's improving um, that? AJ, do you do you uh, or Gary want to talk? About, I know that's David Miller's thing, primarily, but uh, you know that's just the example that comes to mind of how you know we're using a tablet in a very familiar format to give it to a patient to do some screening that might not occur otherwise. Yeah, I'll I'll speak to this, and then um, Gary can uh, chime in as well. So uh, the the Dave Miller um, and colorectal cancer screening is kind of where it started. David spent 
nearly a decade refining content with how do we most effectively educate our patients and get them to make a decision on what sort of colorectal cancer screening they may want for themselves through understanding both the risks and the potential benefits of various modalities. And then, um, and, and so there was a huge body of research that he'd done doing that. And so the next natural step is how do I build this into clinical care, which is where I ended up kind of being involved. So um, we are both, um, he's the PI and I'm co-investigator on several NIH grants, which is primarily looking at cancer related screenings where we push and pull data to and from the electronic health record. Um, and through that interaction, the patient and provider information is synchronized to, to make it very easy for the provider to order what that patient preference would be. In, in a couple of Dave's previous studies, um, we had looked and actually patients made decisions really well. They said, oh, this is exactly what I want. But when it came to actually getting the completed screening done, the priority shifted. So our average patient has hypertension, diabetes, maybe three other problems, and we might not necessarily be focused on cancer screening because we're trying to deal with those other things. And so um, this helps offload some of that routine clinical task. And, and granted, it isn't for everyone. Um, there, there's a subset of patients that benefit from this, and there's a subset that don't. So we, we have expanded this platform uh, over the past year um, pretty substantially. Um, I think that to, to really dive into that, Andy would take a whole nother podcast with Dave <laughs> and I, um, or, or with Dave, uh, so we can dive into um, to that platform a bit more. But that's certainly been um, a nice highlight for the academic learning health system in terms of how we both push and pull data and then feedback that information to both the clinicians and the patients. Yeah, I've been trying for a year to get him to uh, be on the podcast. So he said maybe in the summer. <laughs> Gary, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think, you know, Dave and AJ's work on um, improving shared decision making, um, you know, using uh, uh, web-based or mobile-based tools is a fantastic example, you know, of the academic learning health system and, and, and how to mobilize, uh, you know, technology in a way that accomplishes a task um, you know, which is often very difficult to do in the context of a busy, you know, primary care practice. And that is, you know, how do you really provide patients with the information, you know, that they need, um, you know, to make choices um, that reflect their preferences? I think one of the really interesting findings, you know, of, you know, of Dave and AJ's uh, uh, research you know, has been, you know, that using this tool, integrating it into practice, um, increase the colon cancer, you know, screening rates, you know, significantly. But um, what it also did was, um, you know, it, it, it changed the type of screening that patients got. So typically, you know, as physicians, we promote, you know, colonoscopy you know, which is a procedure that typically has to be done, you know, in most patients, you know, every 10 years. There's a lot of uh, preparation associated uh, with that. Um, AJ, I'm, I'm aware. I, yeah, I'm, no, a, I'm AJ, a veteran. <laughs> AJ, you haven't had the, the pleasure yet of uh, colonoscopy, <laughs> but 
uh, you soon will. Um, <laughs> Looking forward but, to it. <laughs> but what was, was interesting was um, when patients use the tool, they, you know, the overall rates of screening increased, but more patients chose um, just, you know, stool blood testing, which doesn't involve, you know, an invasive, you know, procedure, um, you know, than would have gotten that if it was just sort of a physician, you know, driven, you know, decision. And, and I think, you know, that's just a phenomenal example of how this tool um, improves screening rates but also um, provided patients uh, with care that was much more in line, you know, with their preferences. Well, that's the learning part of the learning health. I mean, the, the patients learn um, and and get information delivered to them in a way that um, is efficient, and then they can feel empowered to to make that decision. So that's good. So I'm gonna we're gonna jump out. We're we're getting close to time. So I, I wanted to start throwing out some forward looking um, questions. So how far are we from say a singularity in healthcare where we're wearing some device that just tracks all the data and, and there's no question about why our blood pressure is what it is because it's got the activities that's been leading up, you know, on a scale of 24 hours and probably a month and maybe a year, just like stock ticker charts or something, you know, that, that so, so all the data is there and it's just like, and the AI tells us what nutrients we need and, you know, we're, we're all healthy living to 200 years old and, and, and anyway, take it away. Let's so riff that on that. Sounds like science. Sci-fi, yeah. Andy. Uh, quite honestly, uh, I mean, I feel like I, I should turn on the TV and see a movie about this. Uh, I, I, I will say, not in my lifetime. Um, I think. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, maybe I would love to. So I'll be optimistic. Would be lovely if, if in my lifetime we had that. But when we're talking about that, it takes an enormous amount of effort to do that normalization and standardization, not to mention the, the variables. So like I said, you know, the, the idea of one single variable. So each day, our inpatient clinicians have to aggregate, and I'm just going to quickly show this, but you can't actually see there any of the PHI, probably 500 data elements per patient, okay, per patient. Mm -hmm. And each one of those data elements probably has anywhere from 10 to 100 different metadata elements associated with it. And so you can imagine the exponential amount of complexity that is there. And so until we have the ability to super precisely make genomic changes without downstream consequences, I'm not sure that we'll be there in our lifetime. What, what would be phenomenal is if we would, right, and, and have this enormous ecosystem of data happening, but I think we also need quantum computing to, to make a little bit more of a jump before we get to that point, because the processor speeds and bandwidth needed for that sort of condensed data uh requires an exponentially greater amount of processing power than than we can achieve with our current semiconductors and, and moore's law um so I, I, hopefully that helped answer your question i think we need um an improvement in one genomics technology we need an improvement in quantum mechanics and we need the standardization to happen uh across you know all of all 500 plus healthcare data elements 
Well, let, let, let me rephrase the question a little bit. Maybe, uh, you know, the devices and the evolution of wearables currently, like I wear a MyZone when I work out, and it gives me some data that helps me compare the historical data and to others and figure out, you know, how I can train more efficiently and things like that. So, you know, how how are those, do you see a time, you know, before the end of your lifetime where we'll get enough good information from those to where it, it will benefit, you know, the larger population. So we'll know enough about that patient specifically, but it will also be able to extrapolate a lot of lessons from more and more people wearing those type of things. Yeah, I think those devices are going to just reshape the way healthcare is delivered. Um, I think, you know, one of the lessons that we're learning from COVID as we rapidly adopted, you know, virtual health, um, you know, telehealth, uh, you know, video visits, you know, with patients is that there's a lot, you know, we can do um, without having patients, you know, come into a healthcare setting. Uh, you know, the, the um, availability of devices that you know, can measure, you know, blood pressure on a continuous basis, you know, that can, you know, your, um, you know, I watch, you know, can monitor your heart rhythm. You know, it can tell you, you know, perhaps if you're going into atrial fibrillation, you know, and that, you know, could send an alert, you know, automatically, uh, you know, to a clinician. Um, I, I think, you know, these will change, you know, the nature of healthcare delivery um, it'll make healthcare much more convenient. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll also, you know, probably lead to uh, the availability of healthcare on a much more, um, you know, on-demand, you know, basis. I.e., I have this problem, you know, mm -hmm. right now. I'd like to get an answer, you know, in the next ten minutes. Yep. Um, you know, so so I think, um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure we're ever going to get to. Um, the uh, point where I, your, your question brought up uh, sort of images of the old, uh, the original Star Trek, yeah. uh, where, uh, you know, Dr. McCoy had this device, he just hovered it over a patient, he knew everything about The, the tricorder, yeah. 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 <laughs> so that is literally sure. what I thought of as well. I love you know, it. I, I had a tricorder question and we got there without me asking it. So <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we're going to get there, but, you know, um, you know, over the next five years, um, the delivery of healthcare uh, is really going to dramatically change. Well, that brings me to the next future forward question: is is can, what? Can I, can I just comment on that real quick? Andrew? Oh, sure, yeah, because, yeah. So, so I one hundred percent agree with everything Gary said. I mean, that that is that is the future. We are the, and the wearables there. Are, we are doing incredible work here at Wake Forest in terms of activity tracking. Dr. Jason Fanning has has um, just received a new grant as well to to actually implement activity tracking on uh, thousands of patients and take that data and aggregate it and look at it and how do we harmonize it with electronic health record? It's very exciting work, and so I think that absolutely will achieve in our lifetimes. I do want. Although I am an eternal optimist, a glass half full human, I do want to caution us a little bit in terms of some of this privacy and security concerns that need to be worked out with respect to these technologies. I don't want to, I don't want that to be the the exclamation point on on this conversation because I see there being incredible promise there, but it is an important consideration to think about. Um, and and 
how we mitigate and manage those. In the context of a research study, it's different than in the world, right? So keep keep that in mind. The the, the, the Gattaca problem. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's right. I like I like your movie references right now. Right? <laughs> so, so okay. So the question I was starting to ask was, you know, at AHEC we're concerned with you know jobs and and careers and and job growth and and that kind of thing. What talk about the jobs of the next? You know, or the, how how healthcare careers have evolved in the last five and how you see them maybe in the next five years and 10 years and what types of new roles are there? I mean, you know, again, 15 years ago, you didn't hear the word informatics much and now it's like a part of everything we do. So, you know, just take that and run. So I'll give you, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, ways you could approach that question. Um, you know, let me give you just sort of, you know, one thought. Um, what I think AI has the power to do is to um, take um, more complex clinical problems and um, provide, you know, answers um, that typically required, uh, you know, highly specialized individuals uh you know to be able to provide where you know that domain of knowledge only existed in a very small you know number of people what i think ai can do is sort of democratize uh you know information and enable uh, individuals without that same level of specialized training you know to be able to provide you know, sort of comparable, um, you know, solutions, you know, for patients. Um, and, you know, so, so I think, you know, you might see, you know, more and more care, you know, being delivered, you know, by non-physicians mm -hmm. or more and more specialized care, you know, being able to, you know, be delivered, you know, by, you know, generalists and the specialists, you know, focus, you know, continues to focus on, um, you know, more, you know, special, you know, application of more specialized, you know, tech technologies. But I, I think, you know, that that is one, you know, potential, uh, uh, you know, I think implication of, of AI. That's, that's, that's great. I, AJ, I'll let you take that too, but I wanted yeah. to just say that um, the way I had it written down is how do we extend care, extend the capacity of caregivers and the roles? And you just nailed that, Gary. Thank you so much. AJ? Yeah, so uh, dovetailing with what Gary said, it's really this um, decreasing the overall cognitive load. And so there's been some discussion around, you know, radiologists and pathologists and are they going to have jobs? I think they will. Um, I think it very much like EKG reading decades ago, EKGs were read purely by cardiologists without an auto read. And they're now still read by all those cardiologists, but there is at least a prompt to reduce the cognitive load to say, here is something, do you agree, disagree, and why? And so I imagine that will happen more and more often as Gary's alluding to with specialists and allowing generalists to take over some of that care. I do think that anything that offers static images or static data will be the first set of things to evolve, if you will. 
Um, mm -hmm. Dynamic data and dynamic imaging techniques or dynamic things are, are harder because of the amount of um, variables and, and the temporality associated with, but anything static. So let's just say a chest X-ray or, um, you know, a, um, I don't know, a pathology slide, a, an H&E stain, those things now with various AI technologies and, and other informatics techniques have been shown to be just as effective as clinicians. So I think that in and of itself speaks to the power of the technology and how the field will evolve. Well, the way one of the ways I've seen it manifesting on the you know on the ground is, is you know we, we certainly COVID had had has mushroomed the use of telehealth and and you know having remote visits and things like that. And then I'm interested in this whole healthcare approach where you have people who are working with people for lifestyle modification and not really clinicians, but are just there for motivational interviewing and so, so additional ways that healthcare is extending um and and more and more information and devices just just enable that so i think we're going to gain a lot more jobs f for humans than than we're going to lose with with ai um so well hey gang um we're w over time now and um i really appreciate you um giving me your time and attention today and i just end with one last question you know what what are the what you know you're, I know you're eternal optimist, AJ. So I'll start with you. What 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 are the aha or breakthrough moments that are just right there over the horizon? It's mm. a tough question, Andy, to end on because there's so <laughs> many. How do I how do I pick some? Um, you know, I think I think the spaces that I mentioned. Um, Radiology and pathology um, will be kind of big breakthroughs, but there's so many domains um, within healthcare that that can have these aha moments. That um, I think we have tons of opportunity. Mental health would be another space um, that I see being valuable and considering aha moments. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. We can have another conversation as well. <laughs> yeah, anything come to mind? I, I, I think what you'll see is really a proliferation of, you know, virtual care. I think, you know, patients have experienced that they recognize, you know, the convenience of it. And um, I think, um, you know, more and more care, you know, will be delivered, um, you know, in a, uh, in, in a non-face-to-face, uh, you know, format. Well, I think that's right. I think, I mean, it gives me hope for human enablement and human empowerment to take their, you know, one of the things they can control in, in many cases, um, you know, from, from lifestyle is a lot of their health related issues. So I think, you know, we can get people more information and learning from that system to help improve their lives. And then all these other things that are so good at, at solving and, and improving, you know, trauma and, and genetic illnesses and those kind of things. We just got a bright future ahead and it's what a great time to be alive. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's a wonderful note to end things. That's exactly right. I love it. Well, gentlemen, yeah. thank you so much. And uh, thanks again for your time today. And I, I thought I had, I thought it was a great conversation. Thank, uh, you, so much, Andy. thank you. Bye bye. bye, -bye.